Hello, folks. Uh, this is David opposing the Matrix. It is um, 6.32 p.m. Uh, Pacific uh, Standard Time, I guess, um, on the 10th of August, 2020. And tonight we we have a very special guest, uh, our friend. We consider him our friend. He's been on the show many times before. Um, Mr. Jonathan Gray. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, David. Thank you for your welcome. Good to um, be with you. It's great to have you here. Uh, also, well, we have Brian uh, on and uh, Jim Wilhelmson. So, uh, and we're waiting for Eric. If he shows up, then, um, then that's great. But we understand he's got commitments to the end of this month. So, so tonight, um, I, I had written to Jonathan and told him that we wanted to talk about some, uh, some things that, uh, that have been found, but disappear. Um, and Jim used a, a good, uh, example. Uh, a few years ago when we talked with Jonathan, he brought up about a triceratops, uh, uh, skeleton that had been found and it had, uh, I, I believe it was a 30 caliber bullet hole in its head. And, um, they, there was a way to ascertain that. So, um, but for, before we get into that, uh, Jonathan, we haven't had you on for a while. We might have some people that, uh, don't know who you are. So um, you want to give a little biographical on yourself and, um, you know, just talk about your work and what you've done and, and who you are, of course, and and um, where you're from and, and the whole nine yards uh, as much as you want. And uh, don't feel pressured to say anything that uh, you don't want to reveal or, or tell anybody. OK, so I'll hand it over to you, Jonathan. Oh, thank you, David. Well, for, for more than 50 years, I've been exploring and investigating uh, these things. My first expedition was down the Amazon into the unexplored headwaters over the Andes Mountains into areas where the natives actually uh, still uh, kill each other with blowpipes and poison darts and shrink human heads down to the sides of your fist. Ooh. And they've got it. They've made that into a real art. And you can actually recognize, if you knew the person before their head was drunk, you can recognize it by looking at their face still, even though it, the whole head may be only as large as your first. Wow. And these natives, actually, it's very interesting. Uh, the evolution theory says that they're, they're coming up from savagery, but the natives themselves have legends that their ancestors lived in great shining cities where the lights never went out at night. Now, they've never seen a city, yet they describe cities as we know them, and they say that their ancestors used to live in these cities. And so what? Uh, rather than these natives coming up from uh, monkey uh, remains or, or something like that uh, and, and gradually improving, they've actually come down. There's been a degradation. And... Uh, very, very interesting. Now, I was about to write a history book, and uh, when I heard this kind of information, I thought, hey, there's something wrong with our history. Uh, and so I did an investigation around the world in more than 30 countries, and I discovered that the whole of the earth was once populated by people who, who actually had great shining cities, people who could fly in the air, people who had electricity, uh, people who actually had uh, who surgeons could could do operations like our best uh, medical surgeons can do today. People who knew the whole world from pole to pole, and uh, people who uh, uh, could could write a, a, as we do and had technology as we have, machinery of all sorts. 
And wow. that came up with, that actually resulted in my book called Dead Men's Secrets with more than a thousand evidences of lost technology. And it, it seemed to me that uh, everything was once known to mankind and then lost in a great disaster. Now, the Bible talks about that disaster as the Great Flood, wiped out a total world of civilization and had to start all over again. And so that got me interested in archaeology. And uh, for, for the last 40 years, archaeology has been my, my passion. And uh, it's got me into, into proving, or rather uh, attacking at first, until I realized I was mistaken, uh, people who said that they had found remains of biblical artifacts. And uh, today, of course, um, and quite a few of my books and DVDs uh, talk about the discovery of, of Noah's Ark, the Red Sea, crossing with the Pharaoh's army all across the bottom of the seabed, and uh, uh, various other places. And it's a very interesting thing, uh, the cover-ups that are being made to try to suppress that information. We can mention some of those today. Yeah, that would be great, Jonathan, because I, I wanted to set aside, uh, because when, when you tell this, it just it just totally blows my mind. But when you talk about the uh, the Ark of the Covenant and and the and the discovery thereof, you know, um, it just it, and all the intricate little details that are developed or you know that are part of that, um, it just totally it 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 it, it sends chills up my spine. First of all. But the second of all, those chills are, are chills of blessings and, and, and hope and, and, and everything else that comes with, with faith, you know, and so maybe when, whenever you feel like it, uh, either before or after, um, towards the end of the show, um, I mean, even good golly, we could, we could go another show if you wanted to do it then too, but it doesn't matter. But, uh, that, those are special stories, I think, that are, are faith builders and, and, uh, and these days and age, this day and age, we need, uh, we need to have our faith built, uh, more than ever. So, but, um, so, how, how much time do we have left, David, for the rest of the show? Then I well, can, I can plan it accordingly. Okay. Well, we have a whole two hour show of you six minutes so far, almost seven minutes. So, uh, okay. That's you know, fine. And we're talking about the, um, Ark of the Covenant. That brings the unique relationship that you had with Ron Wyatt because you were actually, um, a workable, part of his his uh, whole findings were you not yes that is that is true ron became a very dear friend a very humble man who never who never took the credit for anything he did he always gave it to god and said i don't know why god ever chose me because i'm i'm a nobody and that was his attitude all the time that's beautiful that is awesome yeah yeah well you know you're <laughs> You know, to me, you're, you're, I don't usually get too enamored with individual people, but you're one of them that I am. <laughs> you're, you're kind of my hero as uh, far as being a real Indiana Jones and someone. But, you know, it's not the fearlessness that you have, it, but it's also your humility and your desire for truth no matter what and your willingness to go to whatever extent to bring out the truth. I, I really admire that, but I really admire the humility that you have, too. I mean, your work is fantastic. Um, I think you've really shed the light in a lot of ways to a lot of people that maybe the people don't know. They, they've they heard or seen the results and ideas of, of what you achieved, but they don't maybe know you personally because you don't seem to, you're not about promoting yourself, you're about Jesus. 
that's the biggest thing I love about you, man. Well, it's the evidence that's important. I mean, uh, anyone could do this if, if they wanted to, uh, but it's the evidence that stands out that is mind-blowing to me, and uh, I just can't get enough of it, uh, and I just love it so much. I want everyone to enjoy it like I do. Um, correct me if I'm mistaken, Jonathan. This is David here. Um, you were, um, <clears throat> I think for a brief while, you were running a, a little um, school or you were teaching uh, people how to um, how to carry on your work or to do what you do. Is is that true? You were doing that for a while or are you still doing that? I still still do that, yes. And, and several me- several members of my team are, are overseas at the moment, uh, following up on, on various discoveries that uh, we uh, had drawn to our attention. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's great news. Wow. <laughs> so, so tell us about some of the discoveries, um, Jonathan, if you would, that, um, uh, that have um, basically been found and disappeared. I remember you told us one time a while back, about a coal mine that had uh, when they were when they were mining the coal, they'd come upon a chamber, um, and then there was carbonized humans in that chamber and and carbonized other things. And and uh, when the authorities found out about it, something uh, totally bizarre happened. I think, uh, or, or maybe not so much bizarre, but something you'd expect from people that don't want the um, the world to know what existed before the flood. Oh, yes, I'd be happy to talk about that. Uh, coal miners in West Virginia, USA, were working over a mile below the surface when they broke through uh, a seam of coal into an air pocket. And this had once been a water pocket. But what they saw, actually, David, horrified them. Here in coalified form were human bodies not just skeletons, they were bodies with noses, fingers, everything. And they were on the floor, in the sides, and in the ceiling of the air pocket. Now, immediately, the area became a place of restricted access, and the authorities rescinded the permit of the mining company to operate there. Wow. And the spot was then permanently flooded and filled with silt. And soon a dam was built right over every piece of ground and the locality became a reservoir. Now, my question is, who gave directions to cover up this discovery? What is so threatening about the concept of a great catastrophe that did something like this? And how deep in the swamp of lies and cover-ups and deceit in the scientific world? Yes. Well, now, yeah, and and if you're wondering uh, uh, what the underlying reason why the evidence is rejected, it's all about protecting the sacred evolution theory, because the evolution theory says that coal deposits were formed over millions of years, long ages ago, before man ever appeared on Earth, so the two could never be found fossilized together. Mm-hmm. Now, in contrast to that is the Bible record that there never was a gradual evolution of one thing followed by another, but that ancient forests which were to become coal and ancient man were destroyed together during a global cataclysm known as the Great Flood. Right. Now, if the, glo- the global flood really occurred, I think I, I should raise these points. 
There should be thousands of feet of water deposited sedimentary rock layers covering most of the planet. Mm-hmm. And there is. Right. Evident, there should be evidence that many creatures have become suddenly extinct from the event. And there is evidence of that. There should be buried remains of all kinds of life forms found mixed up in the sedimentary layers. And there is. Mm-hmm. And there should also be the discovery of human remains, and that would include artifacts, footprints, and skeletons and and human remains at many different depths in the flood-produced rocks and in the coal beds. And this is precisely what is found. So the fossil evidence does not prove a gradual, not even a punctuated burst of evolution up to man. If a great flood did bury all forms of life in one enormous disaster, then the evidence fits. Mm-hmm. Most stratified rock on our planet is the result of debris laid down by water during the great flood. And none of the strata is millions of years old. Most of these earth layers were laid down along with human remains during the flood. Mm-hmm. And so you might say that this... Uh, These scientific discoveries have become a battle between two religions. Yeah, that's right. The religion of of faith and the religion of evolution. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't want us to know what happened in Genesis 6 before the flood because Jesus said, just as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So, man, they're covering that up. They don't want us to know what happened before so that we won't recognize what's happening right now is not new stuff. This is old stuff returning. Exactly, yes. And and they don't want us to prepare ourselves for what lies ahead. Exactly. That's the main thing, to be prepared, to be deceived. So in the coal bed, give me a a big example of some of the things they found, like the the jewelry, the clay, or the, the iron pot. There's been a lot of different things found in, in coal beds that were supposed to be Mississippian, you know, or, or whatever, uh, you know, so-called period. Oh, yes. Okay. Now, here, here's... Um, uh, where should we go on this one? Oh, yes. Okay, let's go down to the artifacts straight off. Uh, th- these are endless, all over the world buried. But we're not told about them. Steel nails and screws and <laughs> handles of buckets and coins and tools and copper rings uh, an iron thimble and a spoon. And now in, in uh, all sorts of things, in mines in the United States, Italy, England, Germany, France, Russia, and so on, a large number of metallic objects with interesting angles have been discovered. Uh, and... Uh, in the USA, in uh, Mor- near Morrinsville, Illinois, a, a man, a lady called Mrs. Culp, uh, had bought some coal for her, her stove, and she accidentally dropped a shovel full of coal on the floor. Well, one large piece of coal broke open, and inside that piece of coal was an intricately made eight-carat gold chain, wow. about ten inches long. Lucky coiled her. and embedded inside the coal. Yeah, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And the coal was said to have been from the Carboniferous era about 300 million years ago. 
Now, this came from a coal mine in Pennsylvania. <laughs> now, in England, in Tweed, England, blasted out of a quarry near uh, a place called Rutherford Mills, emerged a gold thread of artificial manufacture, and it was inside rock that was supposed to be 60 million years old. Now, man's supposed to have only come onto the planet about two or three, four or five million years ago at the most. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to Massachusetts, a metallic vase was blown out of an immense mass of solid rock, and the rock was said to be pre-Cambrian, <laughs> over 600 million years old. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and it was made of an unknown metal. It was beautifully inlaid with pure silver, and it portrayed six figures of a flower, a bouquet, and a vine or wreath. And the carving was cleverly and exquisitely done. Wow. Uh, now, in, in West Virginia... When a young person was firing a furnace, he dropped a large piece of coal and something was seen protruding out of it. And a chemistry teacher broke open the coal and discovered inside it a brass bell with an iron clapper. Wow. It was seven inches long and a scanning electronic elemental analysis showed it to be composed of brass, bronze and arsenic, sodium and antimony, now, that's a composition that could not be reproduced by today's metallurgy technology. And so the it, bell could still ring. It could still function well. Oh, my so goodness. So it, it was made in an atmosphere that was different from today's atmosphere, right? That's right. Uh, there was yeah. a hammer found in the same situation, wasn't it? You know, a shale, I think. Yes, that's right. Now, over in Austria... A machine-made metal cube was discovered in coal from the tertiary period, supposed to be uh, 12 to 70 million years old. And that was actually made in a foundry. The edges were perfectly straight and sharp, and four of the sides were flat. The other two sides opposite each other were convex, and a fairly deep incision ran all the way around the middle. It was made of hard steel and nickel alloy, and it had been machine-cut. So it seemed to be part of a, a larger mechanism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But get this. This, is, this blew my mind when, when I, I, I discovered it. This happened in Switzerland. The buried remains of a large, well-formed boat or ship, and, and this has been found in many parts of the world, by remains of boats inside the coal. Wow. Uh, either in solid stone or at remarkable depths underground. Now, the Swiss discovery occurred when miners were digging for metals in near Burnie. The ship was buried 100 feet deep inside the mountain, and there was an anchor of iron. But <laughs> what horrified the miners was the sight in the timbers of the bones and skulls of 40 men in the boat still. Wow. Really? Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, and you know you can just imagine. Now, are you going to say, Jonathan, the skulls, the crystal skulls? Man, you got a story that is a mind blower on that one. Now, the fact that a lot of scientists debunk everything. Well, it's got machining tools, and we know there were no machines. Blah blah blah. You know, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, can you tell us a story? Because I've got another story of the same person 
that was there in the same building, the same time that you were doing things. I'm sworn to secrecy, so I can't say anything about him. But you told me the exact story that he told me about three or four years, I think, before we ever knew you and had you come on the programs. And this is something I kept under my hat. But you told me the same identical story. It's just a mind blower. You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, yes, actually, there have been several uh, skulls of that kind being found. Uh, and and b- basically, the, the whole skull has been made out of a, a, a piece of crystal mm-hmm. and carved so intricately uh, that, uh, well, uh, if you put that over your head, you'd love to look through it. Really? That's amazing. Well, yeah. remember, wow. you told me the story where you were in a facility and you were you were looking at the crystal skulls, putting it through some tests or whatever, and somebody else was working on some kind of a, a sound sonic thing, and it triggered the darn thing off. Tell us that story. Oh, the computer thing, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yes, actually, uh, it was able to to, to pick up uh, vibrations and send them out and broadcast them. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, almost like a holographic projection coming from the. Skull. From the skull itself, yes, yeah. that's right. Well, what did you see? Uh, th- that was about it, as far as I was concerned. Yeah, but Jonathan, you t- I think it, I think it was you. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and supposedly this happened in Russia, that they found something in a box that was akin to a, a maybe a laptop computer. Is that- oh yes, yes. I'll talk about that in a moment. In fact, I I, I plan to do that, and I'm glad you raised the question. Good. Very deal. fascinating one. Uh, I actually was going was going to uh, finish off telling you about the, some boats that were found inside. Oh, okay, the sure. Go ahead. And, and then we can get onto it for sure. Yeah, no worry. Okay. But I, I just imagine those those forty men in the boats. I, was, I, I just imagine the mockers of Noah, who believed not in that coming disaster. And anyway, they said, we have boats. I can just imagine them saying, we can save ourselves. And so as the deluge swept over the land, some headed out to sea to escape the carnage. But then they too were overwhelmed and the weight of the mountain was piled over them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes now, sense. Yeah. In, in Naples, Italy, after an earthquake split open a mountain, a large ship was found inside that mountain. Now down in Peru in South America. Mm. Near Caleo, Spanish miners were following a vein of gold and silver underground, deep underground, and they were startled to come upon an ancient ship. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> hey, you know, that, imagine. That's not soft rock either, is it? That's usually no. uh, buried in quartz and, uh, and igneous rocks and, um, and things like that, right, John? That's right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Wow, that's amazing. Now, yeah. Now, uh, the voice of Russia and other Russian sources are reporting that a 300 million year old piece of aluminium machinery has been found in Vladivostok. Really? And experts say a gear rail appears to be manufactured and not the result of natural forces. Now, lighting a fire during a cold winter night, a resident of Vladivostok found a rail shaped metal detail which was pressed in one of the pieces of coal that the man used to heat his home. Well, he was mesmerized by his discovery and the citizen decided to seek help from scientists of that region. 
they studied the metal object and they declared it to be an aluminium gear embedded wow. in coal 300 million years old, but it was manufactured by an intelligent person. Man. Now, nowadays, spare parts like that are used in construction of microscopes and other mechanical appliances. And the evolution theory says early man was primitive, dumb and stupid, couldn't accomplish anything on his own, and so he could not have obtained such advanced thinking capabilities and complex technology simply by evolving from nothing. Wow. Now, so for, for some of our uh, American uh, friends that don't understand British or uh, Australian, uh, or New the, Zealand, yeah. What he's saying is, yeah, aluminum, aluminum was not even made as far as modern sciences uh, in our traditional history until the 17th century. Uh, That's so, right. So here we have this aluminum that is predating anything that should even exists like that there was a there was a ming dynasty um emperor that had an aluminum belt buckle when they opened up his tomb or something i, I i'm sure you know about that one yes uh, that's true so that they should not have been uh, yeah. you, you say aluminum that's fine it's the same as our aluminium on this side of the world we, right. we don't speak good english here <laughs> <laughs> some of us yankees are not familiar you know so that they would go what is that I don't know that substance. <laughs> yes, of course. I, I'm glad you you gave you gave the, uh, the the real way to say it. Thank you. Um, but yes, that's not possible unless you have an advanced technology. Exactly. Now over in Western Australia, water drillers, uh, 80 miles out from Perth, struck concrete 30 feet below the surface, and investigation proved that this was a concrete wall. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, it, it just, wow, uh, the, the elements just kind of happened together and made this, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, that's right. If you if you want to close your brain, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now in Ohio, in a strip of coal mine operated by a man called Captain Lucy near Hammondsville, at a hundred feet below ground, a large mass of coal fell into the shaft and unmasked a large, smooth, slate wall covered with inscriptions similar to hieroglyphics in lines about three inches apart. And crowds of people flocked to see this, but by the time qualified scientists got there with proper equipment, the slate had crumbled in the air and the writing was destroyed. So that was oh. not a man-made cover-up. It was just a, a, a natural disintegration. It's uh, in Pennsylvania, a block of marble was found uh, at a depth of 70 feet below the ground. And this bore an indentation containing a raised alphabet of characters, the letters I and U. Wow. And uh, in, in Omaha, Nebraska, about 130 feet underground, coal miners found a carved slab of rock and the marks on it divided the shape into diamonds. And in the middle of each diamond was the engraving of a human face. And wow. the earth had not been disturbed, and the coal was dated at 300 million years. Oh, my goodness. Jonathan, I mean, wow. you've, been, you've been doing this for so long. Can you, what do you think the mechanics are behind how they're covering all this stuff up? I mean, we kind of understand why, but how? How are they doing this? What do you think? It's really. Well, uh, uh, that, that one we spoke, spoke of at the beginning of the program, that was done by uh, 
covering over with silt and putting a, a reservoir of water over the top so it could never be discovered again. Well, I that mean, was one. I but mean, as, uh, this, politics. I mean, as far as the politics, the system, the whole yes. system that we're dealing with, how are they able to cover this stuff up? What do you think is is going on? Well, let me, let me mention the, uh, the Smithsonian Institute. Okay. The Smithsonian Institute was uh, uh, started in order to disseminate knowledge among mankind, but then it was hijacked eventually by a group of evolutionists who uh, wanted to promote the theory of evolution. And, and what were they to do with all these these discoveries that had been uh, stored in their uh, in their possession? What they did was they hired a. This is one of the ways they've done it. They hired a boat. And let me tell you this, I got, I knew this story and I have spoken of it uh, somewhere in the past and uh, a man who heard me talk about it uh, emailed me and he gave me all his details, his email address, his, 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 uh, his phone number, the name of the company he worked for, it was a tugboat company, and he said, I was a tugboat operator that was hired by the Smithsonian Institute to push a boat out into the Caribbean Sea and dump a whole boatload of artefacts which smashed the evolution theory to pieces. And they wanted to get rid of these so no one could ever mention them. And I actually was the tugboat captain that was involved in that event when they wow. the Smithsonian Institute dumped all these things into the ocean. My Man, Lord's have placed you in the right time and the right place for a lot of different things to see firsthand. I mean, so this isn't things that you just read about. I mean, you're you're like a first responder, man. You're out there on the cutting edge of everything, not studying history, not doing anything but making history. <laughs> That's pretty yeah, definitely. Cool. <laughs> well, yes, and I'm I'm looking forward to telling this story about. Um, uh, what you mentioned in Russia too in a moment. Okay. But in Oklahoma, at a depth of two miles, miners encountered a wall composed of 12-inch cube concrete blocks. The blocks were so smooth and they were polished on the outside and all six sides acted as mirrors. A wow. solid wall was exposed and about uh, 100 to 150 yards further down the shaft, the same wall or one very similar was uncovered. And when they reported the discovery to the mining officers, those men were pulled out of that mine and shuttled off to another mine where they couldn't scream. And that part of the mine was then filled up and covered over. Wow. So whatever it was that buried these items could not have been a mere flood. We're talking about a cataclysm beyond our understanding. Right. And... uh, uh, it's very, very interesting. Uh, money's involved in the established system. People who have been teaching in universities that their positions, their reputation, their opportunity for publication, small and powerful groups control careers. And if you want a university post, you need recommendations. And to get your articles published in scientific journals, you must pass what is called the anonymous peer review. And it's easy for a dominant group to control publication, research money. If you want to succeed, you have to go along with them. And I I personally know victims of that system who have been denied these privileges because 
they spoke up against the evolution theory and, and mentioned discoveries like this. Wow. What a shame. It is a shame, yeah. 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 Now, uh, in Russia, we come, come to this one that you mentioned. That I, I love it. It happened in the beginning, actually, of uh, quite a few years ago, but in our lifetime, at the beginning of September 1969, at the village of Ravshik, Tisukago, in the uh, Kamarova region. I can give you the actual spots in, on the map where this happened. During the stripping work at a coal mine in the core coal seam, which lies at a depth of over 70 metres, a miner by the name of Karnakov discovered a marble casket, and this casket was amazingly accurate in its mechanical manufacturer. Now, at the command in area, a man called Alexander Alexandrovich ordered all work to be stopped immediately. The casket was brought to the surface and workers began to open it. They pecked on the edges of the fossilised putty, not so much from the blows but from the effects of solar heat once they'd brought it up to the surface. The putty melted into a clear liquid and flowed off. And this was a shock to everyone who saw it. The coffin was filled to the brim with pink blue crystal clear liquid and inside that liquid lay a slim unusually beautiful woman who looked about 30 years of age and she had fine features and large wide open blue eyes and her covering was dark brown with a reddish tint to the waist and she had curls and resting at her sides soft white hands with short neatly cropped nails huh. and she was dressed in a white lace transparent dress with a length just below the knee and the short sleeves were embroidered with colorful flowers now it looked like she was not dead but sleeping huh. but at her head was a black rectangular metal box and the box was rounded at one end something like a cell phone Right. Approximately 25 to, to 10 uh, centimetres as they, they measured it in size. And after about 10 to 15 hours, the coffin was open for everybody in the village to see. The whole village came to see this wonder. Uh -huh. Almost immediately, the finding was reported in the district centre. And the fire brigade, the military and militia all confirmed the discovery. By two o'clock that afternoon, a brick-red helicopter landed and the place was declared contagious wow. and onlookers pushed away from the sepulchre. Then the authorities sealed off the place of discovery and quarantined everybody who touched the coffin and even those who had been standing near and they were quarantined ostensibly for a medical emergency. Well, the coffin was transferred into the helicopter, but the burden was too heavy and they decided to make it easier by removing the liquid. After they, after they uh, had been pumping the fluid out of the coffin, the corpse right in front of their eyes began to go black. So then the liquid was again poured in and the blackness quickly disappeared. Wow. 
Then after a minute, the cheeks blushed again and the mortal remains of the corpse looked like they were lifelike again as they had been. Huh. And the coffin was closed and another helicopter was brought in to transport the remnants of the land putty in, in cellophane bags and then the witnesses were ordered to disperse. After that, the helicopter went up into the air and headed for Novosibirsk. Five days later, from Novosibirsk came an elderly professor to the village and reported on the preliminary tests of laboratory findings. The professor said that this discovery would turn upside down their very understanding of history. And when Soviet scientists published their findings, the scientific world would be plunged into shock. The age of the burial, according to the professor, was at least 800 million years old. Wow. The woman was older than the coal, huh. having been buried as the coal formed around her coffin. So this refuted the Darwinian theory of evolution. Uh -huh. Now, to save the evolution theory, some of these people in Russia, and remember the, the Russian government is atheistic. Right. To save the evolution theory, some suggested that she must be an alien. But a genetic analysis of the woman's body showed and she was able to be genetically analysed, showed uniformity of the modern person today. Uh-huh. Today we are one-to-one -one the same as our ancestors 800 million years ago, according to that genetic test. <laughs> no revolution. Oh. Now, yeah. the level of civilization in the time of this woman was far more advanced than ours today because the nature of the fabric from which her dress is made is not amenable to scientific analysis today by our, our ways of doing it. Wow. Equipment by which to produce such material does not exist today in the 21st century. It has not been possible to identify the composition or the pink-blue liquid, but only some of its components, which include varieties of onions and garlic. Interesting. Ah. <laughs> and on the metal box, the professor said nothing except that it was being studied. Well, a couple of days after the professor left, the local newspaper published only a tiny note that was found near the village of Rajavik, and it had been found an, an archaeological relic. The whole region was alive with that sensation, yet in the newspaper, three lines, only three lines. Terrible. Now, the people were indignant, but the indignation subsided when that whole area was suddenly surrounded by the military. And the police went from house to house, removing seditious members of the population. And the place where they found the tomb was carefully dug and filled up with earth. Hmm. Yet despite the efforts of the authorities, among the people in the village were found fighters for truth. And one of these Russian characters kept running around trying to stir up interest. He even wrote a letter to the government central committee in Moscow. Hmm. But within a year, he died, according to the officials. Uh, he just died of a heart attack. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then during the same year, one after another of the people involved in the discovery was killed in car crashes. All six of the original coffin witnesses were silenced forever. 
That's how they got rid of that. That's how they covered up that one. Oh, no. What was in the box? Well, this is actually, uh, I've got more detail on on it with another discovery that was made uh, in Russia. And uh, this may give us the understanding because a lot of the information was confiscated and covered up. But it was a, a technological uh, device that she had. And and uh, I can describe for you another technological device that was found that was very similar in Russia also. And this okay. may give us a bit more information. Um, perhaps I should mention it now. Okay, great. Uh, this this discovery was made four miles away from the entrance of a mine in Russia. The workers went down the mine and then took horizontal shaft, leading them four miles away from the entrance at the surface to make their discovery. Mm -hmm. A miner came up with what looked like one of those fireproof security boxes that people put their valuables in. Right. But just the fact that something like this could be found so far down in the earth was shocking enough, but since the x-rays were done, they finally decided to open and the shock was only just about to begin, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and my informant, who I'm, I still speak with today, and I have all his details, uh, he says inside the box was a mirror, or at least it looked like one. It was not glass, though. It sounded and looked like gold metal, but so smooth and shiny that it looked like a gold mirror. Huh. It was approximately five inches by eight inches by half an inch thick. Five by eight by half an inch. Okay. It had a solid gold edging around it, but no seam could be found. After x-rays of the mirror, it appeared to be hollow. But the inside of it troubled the minds of some people because in the center with something that looked like a circuit board, what we today would call a circuit board. Right. Now, when they brought the box into the laboratory, and and the person that informed me of this was involved, and, and these are his actual words. He says, we knew that this was not going out to the public. But now after this, we knew that just a few of us were going to know what was going on from this point on. Never in our wildest imagination did we foresee what was going to take place 10 years later. Uh-huh. And, and he reported on this. He said, never has any object gone under so many tests. This mirror had everything known to us done to it. And then one day, while one of the scientists was holding it in his hand, something strange happened. Mm-hmm. Well. What happened is this. It turned white and black lines of what looked like a foreign language suddenly appeared on the mirror for just a second. He nearly dropped it and yelled for everyone to look, but as soon as it displayed the black words, it returned to become like a gold mirror. Six times in the next five months, the same thing happened. And on the seventh time, they discovered that it happened at exactly the same instant as another group of scientists were performing experiments with low frequency in another building. 
Ah. So it was, it was responding to the, the frequency coming from the other building, and, and this made black letters appear. Almost like a Wi-Fi system. Exactly, yeah, it does. And he reported to me, when we took the mirror to our building and then to their building, they turned on their testing equipment, the mirror turned white, and line by line, black letters appeared on the mirror again. So they took photographs of the writing, and no one of the top people of the field could tell us what language it was. We had a problem. We didn't want to tell anyone where the strange language came from, but we had to get outside help. We finally decided to use the military decoding people. At least they'd keep silent. They didn't need to know where the writing came from. In fact, they didn't even know that it appeared on the mirror. All they saw was a photograph of the writing. There seemed to be no end to the writing. It just went on and on, page after page. And then one day it stopped and went back to the gold mirror. And we wondered why it stopped, even though the low-frequency equipment was still going. It wasn't until we tried to duplicate the experiment a week later that we discovered that when it came to stop, if we could touch a certain spot on the side of the mirror, it would start with the writing all over again. Huh. And then the shock of all shocks. I was holding the mirror in my own hand. This is the man who reported it to me personally. I was holding the mirror in my own hand and looking deeply into it and touched two places on the back of it and the mirror turned into a picture in a gold frame. Wow. An ancient photo shot picture. Mm -hmm. It was a scenery picture beautiful in colour and obviously taken in a dense vegetation area. But where? Nothing seemed familiar with what we've got in Russia here. So what was this mirror? Well, as others gathered around to look, I touched it again and a different picture appeared. And this was a picture of a small stream with people standing beside it. They looked as modern as us. They were dressed in sophisticated clothing like anyone you might meet in the street here in our day in this country. Mm. Well, when was the picture taken? Who were these people? I guess that the pictures had something to do with the writing. There were 15 pictures and they all appeared to be of a certain family. Some of the pictures included modern type buildings and vehicles I could not explain other than people were riding inside them. One showed a young man holding a globe, but nothing looked familiar about the landmass. Could this be pictures and a recording device from another planet? That was what he asked. Well, he, he, he thought it might be a time capsule, but from what time and from where? Right. <laughs> so, so they took photographs of the pictures, as well as the whole writing sequence, and... For over 12 years now, every expert we have at our disposal, he says, has been working on this project. Don't think for a moment that the things of the world were a top priority. This was top priority. Um, Like an ancient iPod. Right. The decoding people ran every word of, of the strange language through their supercomputers, and then it happened. Things started to click, and they started to make some sense out of the words. 
and what came to be the translation would shock all mankind. It had never, it was never to be allowed to be let out to the world. It couldn't be let out. The government wouldn't allow it to be let out. And he, he said to me, I could not get a photograph of the pictures out, but I did devise a way to scan and send to a private computer the translation of it. So that's what he did. Mm -hmm. And he reported to me, he said, now my life is in mortal danger. They do not know who made a copy, but they know that one was made. That's why I'm giving it to you. And they'll soon put two and two together and know it was from me. My life won't be worth a coin. Huh. The only way to keep them from killing everyone who has, has this is to publish it and get it into as many hands as possible. This was his request. Then, then all I will be able to do is claim it is a fraud or some crackpot story. They will disavow any knowledge of any of us who worked on the project and will deny any knowledge of the Mirror Project 77. Wow. If you get this published, some will believe. And that was the end of his story to me. Huh. You know, and uh, he made extracts from wow. what was translated. Wow. What was translated? I, I, I have the translation with me. The, the mirror, the idea of a mirror is reflected in so many other conspiratorial things that are going on. Um, Alice in Wonderland, the mirror, um, the technology of Tesla, uh, these different things. The, the thing that I'm concerned with, though, is that that most Christians think that angels or angelic beings are just will with, with spirits, and that's all. They had a soul because they had a free will decision to either follow God or to rebel against Him. They also have a body. If the corn of heaven is manna, the food of the angels, then that means they are very physical, also. And this is the thing that most Christians don't understand. Angels, according to the Bible, are physical entities. If you do not understand that, and when they come appearing as as, as aliens, you're not going to make an important connection. And that's what needs that, to be that known. Is, that is right. You hit the nail on the head. And this is what you're, I mean, you're finding all the evidence that shows all these connections, but people, Christians, my gosh, people, study your Bible, know what it says. The angels are physical entities. So when these things come and present themselves as aliens, they're not aliens. They're part of a rebel alliance against God, against his whole agenda. And and this is part of the end time uh, deception. But you're finding, I mean, it's amazing to me how we seem to think that there's a certain preconceived idea of our history and they have been so smooth in covering all of this up and so drastic in their attempts, killing anybody and everybody, burying everything, making it all go away. Because that's the key. As in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. That we got to understand what did exist before the flood. My gosh, all the evidence that you have shows, I mean, buildings, technology, um, even, you know, some kind of vehicles that look like cars but they're not i mean the bible says that there's nothing new under the sun it's all been done before in a time before exactly. jonathan yes, before my before so my great. head before my head explodes what did the translation say yeah i gotta know, I gotta know. <laughs> yeah, yeah really 
Well, I'm happy to share what I can with you. Um, these are extracts from what was translated. And this man who, who, was, who was putting this into the, uh, the iPad said this. This is the 800th year. I, Jubal, the son of Lamech, want to leave the history to my children and all those who follow me. I want to tell the other side of the story, the true version, not the religious foolishness of my great-great-grandfather. From the very beginning, there were some of us who knew that the false teachings of Father Adam had to be stopped. So this is a few generations down below Adam, and he mentions Adam by name. Incredible. Adam's teachings were corrupting our children. Arguments were a daily thing, so we just moved away from them. Wow. From the very beginning, there were some of us who knew that those false teachings of our great-great-great-grandfather had to be stopped. The constant preaching by Adam and Abel finally came to a head when my great-great-grandfather Cain killed Abel. That was a turning point. And descendants of our dear father Cain, Cain our great-great-great-grandfather Cain, made us a separate people. We could not live under the law of Adam that we heard all the time and felt that the preaching was best for our children to move away from. We thought that his detailed history from his time was foolish because he attributed everything to his God. Now I'll try to think back my 800 years and try to set the record straight for those who follow me. I want to tell you of the changes I've seen in the past 800 years. I remember as a child that we were very white and bright. We had a glow about us. Our bodies glowed. However, after the death of Abel, the glow started to disappear. Another thing I've noticed is the diminishing of the quickness of the mind. Oh, actually, he mentioned something else about the glow. He says, because of the change, great fear came upon the descendants of our great-great-great-great-grandfather Cain. Now it seems that we are not as glowing as the, as the other group. But this came on so gradually that no one thought much about it. I think it was nearly 400 years before the first baby was born with no glow. That was a sad day. I guess we were changing into something different and better. Another thing I've noticed is the diminishing of quickness of mind. We seem not to be as sharp as we used to be hundreds of years before. We have to think things out and reason, whereas before we just seemed to know the answer, whatever the problem was. The same with the power of the mind. We used to be able to do many things with our minds, but have lost that power for some reason. But we just invent a machine to do the work now, so it's no problem. We made vehicles to transport us when we could not transport ourselves with our minds anymore. We devoted many years trying to restore our mental powers, but could not, so invented things to make up the difference. It is very interesting too, uh, friends, that uh, if you look at the book of Genesis, it's the line of Cain that, that did inventions and taught metallurgy and so on. Oh, boy. They, they yep. were very materialistic. That's yep. so true. Eric, Eric, the work that you continued on that I had, you know, 
presented the difference between the Gaborim and the Nephilim. Man, he's he's got this down. I mean, he's got all I mean, that just segues right into it, don't you think? Yeah. Okay. We made vehicles to transport us. Yeah. We were growing day by day, and our inventions were glorious to behold. The sad thing is that the time came when our children and grandchildren didn't believe us when we said that we used to have the power of the mind. Adam's followers were constantly trying to get us to return to the old ways. But why would we want to? He's living in the past. Our technology and transportation is so great that we are the marvel of the world. We have proven we do not need the old ways of Adam and his people. Oh, my gosh, man. It's, that just that defines everything. Eric, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry, I didn't catch the last sentence. Okay, well... Does I mean all of that just segues right into the idea that you and I you know understand that the Nephilim and the Giborim there's two different separate entities and the Nephilim yeah. were sent to wander in a land of Nod east of Eden away from the face of the earth and hidden in the earth. You hit that. Yeah, that's right. What I think it's interesting is you know I've always kind of surmised that um, that there's actually been a decline in our physical abilities um, from Adam down and, and that's what you see in account. Um, their mind has diminished their whatever the glow that they had diminished probably um, age declined uh, as time progressed on I, I would suspect deterioration you know, yes, yes. I mean that segues right into Helena Bobaski which I've always called the anti-Moses she is the one that compiled all these different things together back in the 1880s um redefining everything that we understood in the way of Deuteronomy. The, I mean, she's like the complete opposite, the same but opposite pattern of defining this other race, this other seed that is not of God, that is hidden inside the earth, that is eventually, we see in the last days, going to come out of the inside up above. And, man, it just, you know, it all the fossil records, everything proves. I mean, there's different ideas about the Nephilim, who they are, how they came about. But, you know, the one thing that's never understood or never spoken of is the fact that all of the pre-flood giants that were 30 feet tall, they were all male adults. If one of the ideas that, you know, the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they married and produced these giants, there should be baby giants, there should be adolescent giants, there should be male giants, there should be female giants. There's only giants, male adult giants. The other thing that is never spoken because it's politically incorrect is that they were all Caucasian giants. All of them were Caucasian. You look at the attributes of Japheth and you look at the attributes of Cain. Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm white, okay? I'm, I'm probably everything according to the negative part point fingers would be back to me as well as anywhere else but it's not about race jesus died for the human race not any specific aspect of that race just the human race so but there is a twisted truth and she's like 
I call it the anti-mumps disease, compiled and put together all this different stuff to bring about a story of the calling of the anti-humans and their story. And that to find everything that we see evidence of right here and right now. It's like, it's just incredible. It's there, but do we really want to see it? Do we really want to go into sensitive, touchy areas that the rest of society really doesn't want to address too much? But yet, all the evidence, I mean, Jonathan, you've got all the evidence right there. You, you've proved that case pretty solid. I'll say. It's, it's a fascinating subject, isn't it? Yeah, well, I can yeah. see why it would have to be covered up because it would bring further uh, legitimacy to uh, the book of Genesis and the Bible and its uh, authenticity. That's right. And, well, it, and that is, that's what they fear. They, they fear the evidence that's coming in support of that book because it, it just undermines their, all their plans and aims. And when you have the Tower of Babel there that was going to reach to the sky in the book of Genesis. Uh, today, men are building their own great tower and they don't want it to come tumbling down. You know, it's they always got out of their lives. It's always funny about the, you know, building this tower. You know, they, if you're building a tower to, to have a climbing program to pull down God, you know, pull God down from the heavens, why would you build it in a valley? You would build it on the highest level mountain in the area because it had nothing to do with literally climbing up and pulling God down. It said that they were trying to bore or pry open an opening to the third heaven. Uh, yeah. Said, no, it's not time yet. You're not going to do this. Man, the last time we had you on the program, Jonathan, you were talking about how all of the different points um, of overlapping interlays of the ley lines of electromagnetic grid that's over the earth, that, that before the flood, there were structures there. After the flood, they started rebuilding under Nimrod, but they were rebuilding on the same places. But underneath was pre-flood. Above, they were just imitating or trying to duplicate what they knew already existed on that, on that plane. So the amazing thing is, okay, the newer stuff is up there, but it can't. And, and archaeologists and everything trying to cover this up points to that and says, well, see, the whole thing is just, you know, it's after the flood. There's no connection. But the thing is, we understand below the surface, that was pre-flood. They were just restructuring and rebuilding what was already there that they remembered before the flood. And people lived to be 900 years old. So, I mean, Abraham could probably talk to Noah. I mean, you know, they had some common ground on, on identity of a lot of different things. So underneath, we're finding out that there were lakes, Rivers and pools of mercury. And mercury is a key to, uh, and it goes back to the gods and the ancient goddesses and gods and, and who mercury was in, in the Roman and the, the Greek mythology. Man, there's so much there. Mercury is the key to a centripetal or centripetal force of energy that produces instant flight. It actually we find out is that there was a, a huge Wi-Fi system that existed before the flood. This was a power energy grid, and they were just trying to reconstruct it. But God basically said, nah, it's a little bit too soon, too, too early, not going to happen yet. There'll be one that'll assemble it all back together in the latter days, but not right now. So he did put a stop to it. He separated the languages, the continent, the, you know, and everything. But 
there was a time when that attempt was made, but it was made in a valley. So if you got a climbing program, you're not going to put it in a valley. You're going to put it on the highest mountaintop. That didn't happen. And it says this thing literally means they're, they're trying to bore or pry open an opening into the other heaven. Now, in the Hebrew, it's kind of hard because shaman yam, the same word is used for the heaven around the atmosphere of the earth. It's used for the space. It's pronounced shamayim. Yeah. Shamayim. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got it. Well, you would have a very, better <laughs> very interesting what you said. Mm. So continue on, John. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now I'll, I'll just finish. I'll finish off the experts that I've got here of that. The one that was inside that iPod, and mm. and his report. He, he he actually wrote this. He said, in fact, the rumor is floating around that soon we will be able to transport to the moon. We have gone to the very corners of the earth. Why not the moon? The sky is the limit for our people. Adam's followers are so backward. They believe in the supernatural. They believe in some invisible God. We have proven that there is no God, and yet they refuse to believe us. However, statistics show that there are fewer of them with each passing year, many are converting over to our way of thinking. The time will come when they will see and believe like us. And, and that's why you have in the book of Genesis intermarriage between the two groups uh, and, and the, the worldliness of the, the Cain line was coming right into the, uh, the line of the faithful and bringing a lot of them out. Wow. Anyway, uh, he, he reports, he says, We have harnessed electrical, magnetic, and gravitational power. Nothing can stop us. We certainly don't need to live in the past with Adam and his religious teachings that have nothing to do to hold us back. We tried and tried to reason with those people, but they just would not listen. I have noticed through the years that the gulf between our two groups, those who claim to be children of God and us, children of man, has become wider and wider. In fact, one wonders if the differences between us could get any more pronounced. Then something happened recently which has given us hope. The followers of Adam called themselves the sons of God. How arrogant of them. They referred to us as the sons of men. I predict that the downfall of the so-called sons of God will be our fair daughters. The sons of God cannot resist our daughters. And as soon as they marry, our daughters show them that there is a more modern way of life. And one by one, they leave the old ways of Adam. Poor old man. Before he died, he was a delusional. In fact, I don't know this for sure, but if it's true, then we have won. Because without him, his followers will fade away. A great mystery for our people is that we can trace our history back less than a thousand years. Whether we evolved from animals or were planted, so that theory is an old theory. Whether we evolved from animals or were planted here by some other race of people from another planet, we don't know. But either theory makes more sense than the Adam theory that an unseen God made everything. When my family and I flew the other day to Zan in our aircraft, we noticed that some of the lush foliage was gone from the earth. 
I wonder what is causing that. With so many changes in my life, I wonder what the next 1,000 years will bring. I had eye surgery a year ago and open heart surgery just last month. I don't know if I will live much longer, but I wish you well and hope that this brief history, my dear children, will be some value to you in the future. That is what was translated. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. Please. <laughs> wow. Interesting, isn't it? Just as in the days of Noah, so should the coming of Son of Man be. Wow. But you know that yeah, kind of exactly. that's kind of, that's that supports the son of Seth theory, basically. Well, it, it, you know it does, but you know it do, it that's just semantics, really. It doesn't really matter. The fact is, things like they are now, back then. I mean, the sons of God. Yeah, we've searched that a, a little bit further. Eric, your work has been amazing in in finding out and identifying, you know, that whole thing. So it. it our theology is a little different, but you know what? No, no, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just suggesting that um, what what happened was that um, if if the sons of Adam were calling themselves the sons of God, and they were, and and Cain had a certain mark on him that made him genetically different, then it could be possible that the sons of God were the sons of Adam. And when they interbreeded with the sons of Cain, they made a, they made the giants. What do you think? Uh, no, you'll have to go to my museum and see the picture. When you actually see the pictures of it, there's only one thing that fits, and that is what uh, Eric had taken. And uh, yeah, yeah, uh, he's taken the next step to it. But yeah, there's a difference between the Giborim and the Nephilim, and right. the Nephilim definitely. Big white guys with a bad attitude. But, you know, the mark that they were given, if you're 30 foot tall, I don't care how how hardcore bad you are at 6 foot tall. At 30 foot tall, you just got one stomp, and that's the end of the story right there. It's almost like the, the ninja guy that's, you know, doing all the fancy sword play in, in uh, uh, what was it, uh, the first? Um, Indiana Jones, yeah. Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, he's doing all this fancy stuff. He just pulls like a gun, boom, boom, you know, yeah. that's it, end of story. So it's pretty much kind of like the same, you know, same situation. I mean, it's just uh, one is so far ahead of the other. But I, I got to ask Jonathan. Jonathan, have you published that in in any of your books? I mean, is there a, a, a um, an updated version of Dead Man's Secrets that might have that in there, or is there a book that you have that has it in there? That that uh, no, I, I I have not published. This. What I'm telling you today, I have not published in the book. I have published actually. The, the the reports of man-made uh, man man-made remains and uh, man-made artifacts in down in coal mines. I've I've got that in in uh, a couple of my books. Uh, one of which is the corpse came back. That's a trilogy of the world before the flood, which is called uh, that first book is called uh, the killing of paradise planet. That's speaking of the world before the flood, like a paradise. Uh-huh. Then the, the second one in that trilogy is called uh, Surprise Witness, and the third one is called The Corpse Came Back. Uh-huh. And that, that, it relates to discoveries relating to the world before, during, and since the flood. But as, as for this iPod uh, information, I didn't have that available, and I have not yet published it in a book. Okay. Do you plan on doing that? Because, you know, that needs to get out. <laughs> yeah, it, does. it really does. Yes, yes, I think you, you've 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 hit the nail. I, I, I should 
spend some time on that one and, and, and do something about it for sure. Yeah, I, I would if you, if, I'm just asking if you would, because that, that would be, that would be amazing. That would, that just totally verifies everything. <laughs> just, I know, I know, yeah. I want to get, yeah. I want to get at least one copy of everything you've got. Um, like I said, I got one little section of a wall that's devoted just to your work and research. And I would love to be able to have all your videos and, and all your information on there in, in my museum. So, um, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, mean, meanwhile, if you're interested, I, I can give you uh, no no charge at all. Just give you a, a link to, to a, a one page that will give you fifty fifty one books. I think it is. Okay. Great. Uh, uh -huh. And uh, and you can download them all. You can download them all. Meanwhile, and and, and do what you like with them. Give them away to people. Oh, that's awesome. I'm I'm going to do that definitely because I, you know, your work is it needs to be known. It needs to be out there. Well, what I'll do, I'll do, David, is to email you okay. uh, the uh, the link to those books, and, and you share them with with the rest of the guys. Okay, hey, I John. will. I will. Just us. Yeah. Um, now, I get, I got to ask you, Jonathan. I know we're going to continue on, um, but um, my copy of Dead Men's Secrets I must have had for ten years. Has has there been an, a, a new version of it that you put out recently, or? Uh, uh, as an ebook, I have yes. More dead men's secrets will be on in that link to download, but I haven't published it in in the physical form yet. Okay, okay, good deal. Um, so um, I don't know how much time you're going to need to talk about the Ark of the Covenant and those discoveries of Ron Wyatt's, but um, what do you estimate? Oh, I, I think we can get through it, but before the next hour, this hour that we now on it ends, we can we can get a lot in that time. Okay, okay. So you know, just feel free to continue on with what you were were talking about, because I, you know, I'm spellbound. I hate to use that word; it's not a good word to use, but I'm just <laughs> uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm keenly interested and I'm absorbed. So <laughs> hey, Dave. Okay. Hey, Dave. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Brian. Hey, hi. This is Brian. Uh, yes, hey, Brian. I had a quick. I just had a quick question. Um, I know we're going to go on. Do you think the times we're living in now correlate to the technology at the time of the flood? You know, it's taught in church that there was evil and there was all this sin going on, and we're taught that that obviously was part of the flood. But do you think also that the technology increased so much? To a point where God had to step in with the flood and stop it because we were advancing too fast. We would kill ourselves off too fast with nuclear weapons or whatever it is. And then uh, Yeshua, Jesus, wouldn't be his plan wouldn't have come. So do you think from that time, because what you're telling me, basically, they were probably almost more advanced than we are now, but we're cloning we're doing all this, uh, this stuff and robots and this high-tech stuff now. And they're doing designer babies where you can design your child uh, by DNA to, uh, things. And do you think that we're getting to that point now? And that's why it looks so close that the Lord is about to come back. It seems like. Oh, yes. I, th I think you've made a very important point. Uh, you know. You know that uh, as I think David, you just you quoted a text from Ecclesiastes: "What hath been shall be." In other words, what came in the past will come again. Right. And if you look at the book of Genesis, 
It says, God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh. All flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Now, all flesh includes animals, man and animals, amalgamation, man and beast. And the Lord said, I'll destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing of the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me, I've made them. Now, do you know today, scientists have created the first human-pig hybrid in a groundbreaking study that marks the first step in growing human organs inside animals. They call it Chimera, after the cross-species beast in Greek mythology. The pig-human embryos were created in the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in La Jolla, California, and are the first hybrid made using two large distantly related species. Wow. And it came on on, a, on YouTube that scientists create first human pig, Shimarek embryos. Well, the earth was filled with violence, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. But they're defacing the image of God. God made man in his image, and now man was defacing it and corrupting that this Listen, by amalgamation of man and beast. Well, that's occurring again, and I do believe that uh, God knew that if they continued any further, there would be no one left to save. Uh, the fact is the earth was becoming more corrupt, and so God brought the flood to to give man more time to get ready for the coming Messiah, and so he spared that family that was faithful and, and put back the tide of evil for, for some time. But it's, it's now caught up again to the days of Noah. That's interesting, wow. you know, because if you look at the book of, I don't know if you've ever read the book of First Enoch, but um, he talks about uh, exactly what you talked about, how mankind had uh, began to uh, interbreed animal species with each other and had corrupted all animals. And that's what that means. And you, you just explained that, of course, uh, you know, when you, ju- you were just talking. So um, it just it just verifies again that uh, we're that much closer. And, you know, you were talking about the Tower of Babel and and God came down and he said that, uh, look what mankind has done. If we let him progress, there's nothing he won't do. You know, that's right. and, nothing and, that he imagined they would be able to do. Yeah, they right. were going to be successful in their endeavor. Right. You know, they would have been repeating the days of Noah. You know, uh, and uh, and God had to had to push it back again. He, he has given up man more time to get ready. Yeah, that's true. In in the Babylonian uh version of the Tamal, uh there's a and this is just oral tradition guessing or whatever you want to call it, nothing that's, you know, solid. But in the pretty much like Kabbalah, which is like a, more of an occult-based thing, but it was from the uh, the Babylonian uh, texts of the Talmud, which were, you know, commentaries by rabbis, and their influence being pagan. They had a tradition, an oral tradition, that the reason why uh, uh, pork was forbidden so obstinately in the Old Testament was because from the prior flood days, the tradition was that men were being cha- or humans were being changed into pigs, and so because of this transmutation or transgenetic manipulation, it was forbidden. That's why it was a horror to you know to eat or have anything to do with a pig being totally unclean. Like I said, it's just it's just a a crazy part of paganism mixed in with Judaism. 
but it sure may give a reflection of why that restriction was so stringent all the way through, even interesting to this day. Hmm. You made an interesting point. Yeah. Continue on. Jonathan. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, getting on to the discoveries, um, after one of my British lecture tours announcing the discoveries, uh, a group of skeptics got an independent investigator, John Bishop, to go physically to some of the sites to check out some of the claims I was making. And one thing that really upset the skeptics was my claim that modern maps were wrong in drawing Mount Sinai in the so-called Sinai Peninsula and that tourists seeking Mount Sinai were not only being taken to the wrong mountain, but also to the wrong country. <laughs> the truth was that Mount Sinai is really in Saudi Arabia. So John Bishop sub sub subsequently investigated and he issued this report. In fact, he, he sent me a copy of his report. He was hired by the skeptics to, to discredit the discoveries, and he wrote, this was his report. I travelled to the site of the Red Sea crossing at Nueva on the Gulf of Aqaba, part of the Red Sea. There I photographed the area, including the pillar supposedly erected by Solomon to mark the crossing site. And having travelled back through the Wadi Watur, it's easy to see how this could well be the route of the Exodus and the Nueva site of the crossing. Wow. However... What then do we make of the Mount Sinai located 120 kilometres southwest of Nueva on the same side of the Red Sea as Egypt? Next stop, Mount Sinai. I travelled through the desert to find the mountain range as it was now standing in line to use the toilets at the St Catherine Monastery at the foot of the so-called Mount Sinai. Tourist buses were arriving, bringing pilgrims from Israel and Christian tourists from all over the world. Standing in the queue with me were a couple from Nigeria. I asked them whether they believed this was the real Mount Sinai, and from the looks I received, I might as well have asked them if we were standing on the earth. <laughs> <laughs> they had paid out enough money to the tour company to visit the biblical sites to allay their doubts. But I was disturbed. I had hired a car and driven to take me across the Sinai Desert, but no one... New Testament verse kept ring just one Testament verse kept ringing in my head from the book of Galatians. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, not Egypt. I voiced my thoughts out loud, but if the Bible says Mount Sinai is in Arabia and we're here in Egypt, well, my voice trailed off. But the implications were obvious. The Nigerian couple also felt my words implied something, and they brushed past me into the toilet. Well, we listened to the, to the uh, tourist guide. He said, this is Moses' burning bush. And we, we were not 20 yards from Moses' well. Well, if the monks were to be believed, this was the same bush Moses stood before and heard the voice of God thousands of years ago. And later I drew a young guide to one side and said, do you really believe this is the bush? Oh, no, he said, it's just a bush the monks brought here to make the tourists happy. One other anomaly stood out, like a sore thumb. The Pharaonic tombs and mining works. The Bible says specifically that Moses fled Egypt before arriving at Mount Sinai. So how come the tombs of the pharaohs and the, and the, 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 the gold mines of the pharaohs are close to this site? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, 
the chances are that it will always remain Mount Sinai for the tourists because whole communities make their living from it. Right. Egypt earns a lot more in tourist dollars, and the Bedouins control the touring around the area. Was I asking too many awkward questions? When I attempted to leave Egypt to come back to England, I was arrested and and oh, I boarded oh. as I boarded the plane. Ah. No one would tell me why. Uh, was I a smuggler or what was I, a terrorist? <laughs> the airline prepared to abandon me and my luggage was taken off the plane and I was interrogated for my reasons for visiting Egypt. So I showed them... They showed only interest of my photographs and the things I had been photographing. And I was praying through all this. And then suddenly one policeman arrived who seemed to take my side. He dismissed all efforts to call me illegal. And he told the airline company to hold the plane. Still nobody would tell me why I was detained. But my guardian angel, as I call this policeman, said, well, we'll tell you next time that you come to Egypt, but now go quickly. So they knew who I was. They asked for me by name. And then, thank God, the policeman came and as an answer to prayer and got my release and I got all my pictures back. Was I asking the wrong questions why I was there? Wow. And when I went back to Egypt later, I was arrested again. Oh. The national security again asked me by name, searched my belongings, refused to say what I was looking for, but they showed interest only in my books and films. Oh. Well, this is because there's a big hoax. Every year, excited tourists with their cameras climb the slopes of the so-called Mountain of God. But unknown to most people, the real Mount Sinai lies in Arabia. And unknown to most, the reason this location was selected uh, in Egypt was solely with the opinions of one man, Emperor Constantine. Right. In a fit of depression, he sent his mother Helena to the Middle East to discover some spots he had seen in visions. The Sinai Peninsula was one spot she visited. And 200 years later, the monastery of St. Catherine was, was built there. And over the years, many historians and scholars have realized that this site cannot be the site. It's impossible to have it. The monastery is situated in a narrow valley, not enough room for very many people. And yet we're dealing with a, a, a whole nation of people that went to Mount Sinai, 600,000 men and about 2 million uh, wives and, and children. Right. And... Uh, outside the jurisdiction of Egypt. So-called Sinai Peninsula came into being only 2,000 years after the Exodus. And the, the so-called Sinai is simply a modern hoax. Because, you know, 3,500 years ago, Moses gave us a list. He listed more than 20 things that should be found at Mount Sinai if at the genuine site. And... Uh, this, the most sacred mountain in the world, most famous artifact in the world was the Ark of the Covenant. It was also built at Mount Sinai. And we'll speak in a moment about that. But uh, feverish attempts have been made to cover up the discovery. And uh, not only this, the true Mount Sinai, but also the Ark of the Covenant discovery. Mm -hmm. So inherent 
in the Ark of the Covenant was the secret of life. We were created to live in joy and happiness, weren't we, without ever dying. Our body is designed to renew itself. But God has given us spiritual laws to work the same way as physical laws. Now, you jump off a roof, you fall to the ground. Right. You put your hand on a, on a hot stove, you burn it. That's a physical law. But the spiritual laws, and I'm thinking of the Ten Commandments in particular, are to keep us happy, to keep us safe. And if every, everyone would keep them, we'd have a very happy world. Right. Now, we did not originate right or wrong. These standards were handed down to, our, to mankind. And the reality of existence is that we have broken those laws and we're separated from the life giver, and so we die. And the Ark of the Covenant was constructed, actually, to portray the story of rescue that will give us life beyond the grave or eternal life. And uh, it was a, the Ark's main purpose, the Ark of the Covenant, was a repository for the Ten Commandments, the universal spiritual law. And uh, the, the scriptures just tell us that uh, when God wrote the, that law and told uh, Moses to put it inside the ark, the ark of the covenant was named after the words of the covenant. The Ten Commandments are called the, the covenant. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was to be placed in the ark, which was a box, the ark of the covenant. The message was that our wrongs cut us off from our creator Separated from our life giver, we die. And the ark was a teaching model of our creator's plan to rescue us. Right. We have broken that law, which is the foundation of God's government. Over this law, though, Moses was told to construct a, a lid, which was called the mercy seat. The Lord's mercy is over his law. It's a prerogative of the lawgiver to provide mercy. And the location of the Ten Commandments below the mercy seat of the ark taught that God's government and law isn't arbitrary. It's based on God's loving, loving mercy. From the throne, which the ark actually represented God's throne, from the th divine throne emanates not merely justice, but also mercy. Okay, so while the tablets of the law testified against the wrongdoer, the mercy seat pointed us to a way in which the claims of the law for obedience could be met by the coming Messiah and the wrongdoer saved from death, the penalty of the law. Okay, so right. on the basis of the law alone, there could be no reunion between God and man because sin separates each person from his maker. The mercy seat must intervene. And so it was that every year, the blood of an animal sacrifice, a prophetic uh, symbol of the coming Messiah's sacrifice the blood of an animal sacrifice was sprinkled onto the mercy seat the sacrificial blood placed the mercy seat over the Ten Commandments was an impressive symbol of the price that our sins have cost in which the Saviour would be willing to pay so in a nutshell it simply meant this the blood of that coming promised one will be shed as a sacrifice and God will grant mercy to all who accept that sacrifice to cover them from their wrongdoings. Now, I, I remember in California, there was a, a well-known television personality who was racing over a bridge to catch an appointment that he was late for. He was stopped by the traffic cop 
who began to write out a ticket. And then the, the, the traffic officer said, well, uh, may I see your driving license? He pulled out his license and immediately the traffic officer recognized the man. And he said, oh, my wife watches your TV show. She loves it. Look, let me intervene. Let me help. I cannot tear up this, this, this uh, ticket. You still have to pay the fine. He pulled his hand in his own pocket. He, he gave the $50 note and bill to the, the, the driver and said, now, I have paid this. You, you must now pay that into the, the air. I, I have written out the ticket. You, you've broken the law. I'm providing you some mercy. Don't do it again. Uh -huh. Well, that's a good illustration, I thought, of what the Messiah has done for everybody. Definitely. Amen. Wow. Anyway, uh, in ancient times, according to the evidence, the, all the ancient nations universally claimed that the first great father, that's Adam, was informed of a coming rescue program, which will abolish death and restore the world to its original perfect state. There's also evidence that the name of the rescuer was known from the earliest times, and his name was recorded on the ancient sky charts in my book, Sting of the Scorpion, uh, which is talking about the, the whole gospel story written on the ancient star maps before astrology was ever known. Astrology is a counterfeit of, of, the, of the salvation that's written on the star maps, and that's a beautiful subject. It was that subject actually that brought me to to uh, love and follow the Lord the Lord God. Really, nice. Yes, the gospel in the, in the old star maps. The, you know the the Virgin with the baby, Virgo, right. hmm. with the baby in her arms, and and then the, uh, Leo, the Lion of Judah, the, uh, comes at the end times. Uh, everything in, in the star maps is at the right in the right order. And uh, the, the crucifixion of, of that, the Lord was actually predicted on the old star maps as well. And on the star maps was the name Yeshu. Neat. Really? His name was given on the star maps in the names of the stars. Huh. <laughs> Go figure. Fascinating story. Yeah. And, wow. and uh, also, I, I, I have heard of a conversation between a, a skeptic uh, a skeptic Jew and and a and a Christian Jew, and they were talking about about the, uh, the coming Messiah. And the Christian Jew pointed to the skeptic Jew. Uh, look in the in the Tanakh, uh, in the Old Testament, you've got the story not only of the coming one. You've got three hundred prophecies of him coming, but you also have his name in there. His name is recorded in the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a very fascinating story. And not only that, but in the, the prophetic book of Daniel, there is a, a time given for this to happen. Uh, and uh, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, was given the actual date of the Messiah's sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Now, some very interesting cover-ups took place uh, when... Uh, Jesus was um, uh, had come and gone. the The New Testament tells a story of uh, of those who were reporting uh, him as being the the savior of the world, and how the the, the skeptics wanted to um, 
to uh, deny it. It's interesting that uh, in 1656, a dispute arose in Poland between some distinguished Jewish rabbis and some students of the Book of Daniel who were Christians. And the dispute concerned Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. And the students said, look, this prophecy proves Yeshua to be the Messiah. It tells exactly when the Messiah was to suffer. The rabbis were so hard-pressed by this argument, it was embarrassing, so they broke up the discussion. The rabbis then held a meeting, and as a result, they pronounced a curse upon any Jew who would attempt to work out the chronology found in this prophecy. And this is the curse, word for word. May his bones and his memory rot, who shall attempt to number the 70 weeks. Now, that curse is recorded in the Jewish Talmud. Mm -hmm. Now, does, if that curse arouses one's curiosity, it certainly aroused mine. So I undertook a long, careful examination and found that in Daniel 9.24, we're given the actual length of time from a confirmable specified event in world history right. to the predicted year the Messiah would appear. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at the, uh, if you look at the uh, Jewish uh, calendar today, it's very interesting. It does not agree with the Jewish Bible in the chronology. Mm -hmm. There's a 241-year discrepancy. Is it true that the Jewish holy book and the Jewish year count disagree with each other? Yes, that's so. Jewish history was deliberately shortened to make the messianic prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 extend into the second century. Interesting. And this was at last of a series of moves that were uh, made to curb the alarming growth of the Christian movement within the community. Now, it's interesting that um, the uh, Roman siege of Jerusalem in AD 70, no one escaped except the Nazarenes who had been prophetically forewarned to relocate to Pella, east of the Jordan but a, a, the lead Pharisee, Rabbi Jokman ben Zakkai, was able to fake his own death to be removed alive from the city during the siege and reorganize the Sanhedrin uh, on strictly Pharisaical grounds. And about 90 AD, his successor, Rabbi Gamaliel, in order to drive the Nazarenes out of the synagogues, they were numbering approximately uh, 20 to 25,000 at that time, added the curse against the minim, the heretics, mm. to the uh, 18 benedictions recited at every authorised synagogue. Despite this, it seemed impossible to curb the growth of the Christian movement. So finally, in the 130 years after AD, 130, Rabbi Akiva, the father of the Mishnah, attempted to answer the Nazarenes, the Christians, by promoting a new non-Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. And this ripped out key words in the text that were especially used by the Nazarenes to demonstrate Jesus as the Messiah. Well, Akiva also chopped out at least 160 years of known Persian history so he could compress history close together so that the 490 years prophesied in Daniel 9, during which Messiah must appear, would reach 
no longer into the first century, but go into the second century. <coughs> now, the, the Jewish encyclopedia uh, admits that there was a, uh, a, an attempt to, do, to, to change history, a frank admission that there was a purposeful suppre suppression of the truth. According to a number of Jewish scholars, God directed the second century sages to do the falsification of Daniel so as to confuse anyone trying to use the prophecies to predict the time of the Messiah's coming. Mm -hmm. God gave the prophecy to Daniel so that everyone would know when to expect the Messiah. And then he says God tried to cover up what he had revealed so people would not know. Well, something silly about that statement, isn't there? Yeah, for sure. But by ripping out 165 years of real time from Persian chronology and throwing it away, Rabbi Akiva hoped to derail the evidence that Christians were successfully arguing that Daniel's 490-year prophecy was fulfilled by Yeshua of Nazareth. Oh, my goodness. He hoped to extend Daniel's 490 years into their own day in the second century and thus whip up support for a messianic revolt against the Roman occupation, which led to the uh, Kokhba revolt of uh, 132 to 5. Right. So what we've got here is a cutting out of uh, time to uh, cover up the prophecy which identifies the time of the Messiah. And not only that, but then in Alexandria, uh, a new chart was made of the, of the sky. And the name Yeshua was cut out of it. And the big, a big, and the the fact is that when Jesus was on the cross, uh, the the star signs which prophesied his his crucifixion were actually at midday that day shining over Jerusalem. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah. So it was actually saying the wounded, the bruised, and the stars in, in the forehead of the one in the pictures uh, on the star maps meant the bruised and the wounded. Well, Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. Exactly the scripture is on the map, star maps. The, of the, now, all that was cut out and there was left a white area with no stars in it at all where the stars do exist, just to get rid of the Jesus stars. Interesting. Hey, Jonathan, so are you saying that uh, the Jewish calendar is actually – um, minus 165 years in its exactly. current form. Well, I got news that for is, you because I did the math because it's it's 5780 according to the Jewish calendar, and if you add 165 years, it comes to five five thousand nine hundred thirty five, which tells me that there's only 65 years left till we reach six thousand years. Um, and, and a lot of people think that six thousand years is what's allotted. For the, um, you know, for the coming of Messiah, uh, that, that that all of human history will have six thousand years, and uh, also, if you realize that Jesus said that uh, time would be shortened before he came, it could basically be any time. Could be any time, yes. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's an interesting thing. That the cover up on the star maps, yeah. the cover up uh, on the revised uh, translation of the Bible. Yeah, and very interesting. My goodness, never heard this before. Well, it's it's fascinating. Um, but now, in the time that remains, we can talk more about the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, great.
I, I, maybe you may ca- you care to ask questions. I'll do my best to hit straight to the answers. And, and understand too that um, I, I know that uh, everybody's going to want to stay for this, but um, we do actually have three hours allotted to us. And um, so if it goes over a little bit, um, I'm I'm okay with it. I don't know about anybody else, but uh, um, I know that some of them live on the East Coast, and um, uh, they, you know, Jim, I don't, are you okay with going over a little bit? Eric, I'm I'm okay with it. Okay, do we still have Jim and Eric? Jim, are you there? Oh uh, yeah. Okay, and uh, it looks like we still have Eric. Okay, so are you okay with going over a little bit if we have to? If we have to, we can grab a little bit. Yeah, sure. Okay. All righty. Um, well. Take it away, Jonathan. Okay. Now, the Ark of the Covenant actually was the centerpiece of the Old Testament tabernacle service. And uh, it it was placed in the what's called the most holy place, the, the second room of the, of the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, it was a symbol of God's throne because the, the throne of God actually was overshadowed by the Shekinah, which was the glory of God. And uh, uh, once a year, animal blood was sprinkled onto the uh, mercy seat over the broken law. And uh, it, it told the story to the people that God will have mercy on all of us lawbreakers if we accept the blood over us in God's mercy. Mm-hmm. Now, this was too valuable an artifact for the Babylonians to be allowed to uh, take when they destroyed Jerusalem in uh, 586 BC. And the, and the land was... Uh, uh, deserted for 70 years during the Babylonian captivity. When they went back home uh, and they built another tabernacle to replace it when Jerusalem was restored, uh, there was no, no Ark of the Covenant in the Second Temple. Mm -hmm. There was just a table where it used to be. Where was the Ark? It's not mentioned as one of those items that was taken captive. It's not mentioned as one of the items that was in the tabernacle again later. It did not exist. For 2,500 years, the the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant was unknown. However, this American amateur archaeologist, Ron Wyatt, was uh, walking along uh, in front of Skull Hill, which uh, has always had that name and still does. And it still looks like it. Place of the Skull. And they were talking about various things, and then suddenly Ron's left arm shot out, and he said, the Ark of the Covenant's in there. And as he said that, suddenly he he looked at the antiquities director and said, hey, that was not even in my head. How did it come out of my mouth? (laughs) We were greatly impressed. The antiquities man says, Mr. Wyatt, come to my office. I'll give you a permit to start digging. Now, that's uncharacteristic. Jewish authorities don't just offer permits like that. You have to beg almost on your hands and knees. You've got to be associated with the university of which they approve. You have to be invited. You just don't get any offers like that. Right. And Ron says, well, I don't even know anything about the ark. 
I, I, I don't know. I'll have to go home and, and see whether it should even be there. Mm-hmm. Well, the next year, uh, he came back, and the Antiquities Department actually <laughs> looked after him, gave him accommodation, looked after the washing of his clothes, did everything for him just to encourage him to, to, to start digging. <laughs> well, Ron kept on digging, and he, uh, he, he started digging, and, and truckloads of rubbish had to be taken away, which had built up over the centuries. Eventually, as the cliff face uh, was cleared away, there was found to be three signboards cut into, there were three, uh, three cavities cut into the, the, the rock on the side of the Skull Hill. And uh, uh, they, were, they were cavities that were shaped to hold signs, three signs, one in Hebrew, one, one in uh, uh, Greek, and one in uh, Latin. And uh, the scripture speaks of three signs being over the cross. Well, as they, as they kept on going down, they came to a platform in front of, of the, uh, the, the Skull Hill. And on that platform, there was a hole. In, the, in that hole, there was a plug that closed up the hole. Mm-hmm. The, the, the hole itself was found later on to be a crucifixion hole. And then as they dug down lower, in front of it, still lower, there were found to be three more of these. And then around those three, there was built the platform of a a building that had been constructed around the crucifixion site at some stage. And uh, coins found in there showed it to have been constructed in the first century, in the lifetime of the apostles. And uh, then... In the middle of it was a great big stone, 13 feet, 2 inches uh, in diameter and uh, two and a half feet thick. They didn't know what that was doing there, but for some reason somebody had enclosed the crucifixion site with a, with a building and, and the stone was in the middle of it. Later, as they can continue digging, they came to the place now known as the Garden Tomb and there was a place. I, I went there myself and did my own excavation, my own uh, investigation, and I, I was able to measure with my team the distance uh, where the seal stone had been in front of this tomb. And that seal stone actually, uh, the, with, with a peg one both sides of it, where yeah. the Roman seal would have been linked by the t- two pegs, one each side, holding the stone in place. And there was a there was a difference between them of exactly thirteen feet two inches, <laughs> and there was a, a a rolling stone ridge in front of the tomb yeah. where the stone would be rolled, and that was precisely or just over two and a half feet. So here we have coming down on the crucifixion site a a uh, four four crucifixion uh, holes. Mm-hmm. Uh, with plugs in them to stop people falling in or horses breaking their legs and so on as they came by. And this was facing a public thoroughfare. The Romans always did their crucifixions in a public thoroughfare as a warning to people, don't you do wrong or this will happen to you. Right. And uh, at the time when Jesus was crucified, uh, he was to be the, uh, 
by the Passover lamb, it happened at the time of Passover. He was the predicted Passover lamb. He was taken before the governor Pilate, and Pilate saw he was innocent. In fact, his, his own wife had a dream to, to don't touch this man. She, she was troubled by it. Right. And so Pilate was troubled. And so he remembered a custom, a local custom, that um, at Passover time there was always uh, clemency given to some condemned person. Now, at that time, there were three men condemned to, to die. Uh, two, two thieves plus uh, a leader, a man called Barabbas. Right. And so Pilate got out this, this, this hard, ruthless killer, Barabbas, and said uh, to the crowd, shall I release to you this innocent man that I found no fault in, or shall I release to you this criminal? And they said, free Barabbas, crucify Christ. Right. Now, at that time, they had had three, they had three cross holes, one for each of those three criminals that had been cut by the Romans in the rock mm-hmm. in front of Skull Hill. But now they had the prize that they had been trying to catch for the last three and a half years during his ministry, the ministry of Jesus. The Gospels give us at least 11 attempts on Jesus' life during those three and a half years, but say that his time had not yet come. But when his time had come, God, God himself willingly allowed his son and Jesus willingly gave himself. Now, he was the star attraction. He was the one they hated the most of all. They were jealous of his popularity. They, they hated the things he was saying. And so they were going to make him a star attraction. So what they got the Romans to do was to put another cross hole higher than the, than the three so that he would be the star attraction, their great tr- prize they had now got to, to be killed. Right. And uh, when Barabbas was freed, they had only two holes refilled below him. So Jesus was placed in the uppermost one, and out of those three below, the two thieves came, and they were one on each side of him. Now, the story goes that uh, Jesus uh, uh, offered a prayer of forgiveness to his, his enemies and his captors, and then he died for our sins. Mm-hmm. Now, at that time, however, uh, it, it, the custom was that it was Friday afternoon and they, and they did not want the uh, these men to be uh, on the cross over the Sabbath day, lest everything be polluted. So they went to the governor and said, uh, we want permission to break their legs to, to hasten death so that they'll be dead before sunset and we can take them down and throw them on the city rubbish dump, the fire to burn and their memory be forgotten. And Pilate gave them permission to do that. So they went back and they, the, 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 uh, the, the, the soldiers broke his legs. But when they came to Jesus, found he was dead already. So one of the soldiers, just to make sure that he was dead, put a, thrust a spear up into the, the heart sack and out came blood and water. Now, there was an earthquake just before that happened. And the earthquake opened up the stones, opened up the rock. Right. Now, when Jesus died, as we know, the blood and the water came down out of his side, down the cross, and there, right there, when Ron Wyatt started digging, he found the crack in the rock. There was a crack in the rock behind, and there was a crack in the rock where the cross hole was. And so if the blood came down the cross hole, it would go down through the crack. And it, where did the crack lead to? After three and a half years of digging, Ron and his team came across this 
this cave under the under the ground inside skull rock and there was the ark of the covenant and other items from solomon's temple and it's a big story uh and uh, he fainted he realized that three and a half years of digging when he he thought nothing was going to happen had now paid off and he was there looking at something that had not been looked at by human eyes for 2,500 years. Wow. As a matter of fact, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Jew, Jew, there were Jewish books that say that the ark was hidden in a cave. And uh, there, are, there are other evidences that it was too. So what happened next was... Ron went back there several times. The, the Jewish Antiquities Department said, can you give us evidence and proof that you've found something from Solomon's Temple? He went back and he brought out an object, which was the, a pomegranate-topped scepter of the high priest that it was placed in there. Inside that cave, underneath, 20 feet below uh, the, the, the uh, Arab bus station area in, in out, outside of the, uh, the old city, uh, there was the uh, uh, th there was a cave, and in that cave was this object, and also there was the uh, the menorah, the three the seven branch lampstand, the the table of showbread, the the table of incense, and a, a very large sword, which we believe was the sword of Goliath, mm -hmm. and uh, that was placed there. In, in Solomon's temple, uh, and uh, David, of course, his, Solomon's father had been the one that got that that uh, that sword. Right. And uh, so the, he brought this item out and gave it to the antiquities. And when my wife and I were in Jerusalem, we visited the the museum, and they had it on display, saying, "This is the only item that we have in our possession from Solomon's temple." Uh, it was there with all the other items from Solomon's temple, which are still today in, in that cave. Now, there are skeptics who say, show us the evidence. Well, let me, put, let me put it this way. When Ron got down into that cave, he made several other visits. He looked at the ceiling where the split was in, and the split went right up to the cross hole. Uh, a, a tape measure was thrust through with two people, one at the top, one at the bottom, and uh, the blood came all the way down and there was evidence of the blood in the roof of the cave and it had also sprinkled down onto the lid of a box that enclosed the mercy seat and, and the ark. Ron took samples of that blood and he went to the antiquities department and says, where can I get this tested? They gave him a laboratory in Jerusalem, uh, on the northeastern corner of Jerusalem, where it was to be tested. And um, the interesting thing is this. <clears throat> when they tested the blood, they were not ready for what they were going to find. Mm -hmm. They were nervous. In fact, I've been, I've been asked, how do the Israeli authorities react to the find? Well, I'll speak frankly. From the information I'm able to acquire, it's 
evident the authorities don't know how to handle this discovery and they have a right to be nervous because uh, some time ago a permit was granted to some Israelis to undertake an excavation under the Temple Mount and after a short while it was reported that workmen had been seen digging crates into the excavation tunnel or rather carrying crates in and this aroused the curiosity of the authorities they went to investigate and they discovered that the tunnel penetrated to a spot close under the Muslim dug in the rock and high explosives were being set in position presumably to blow up the place and uh, this is the third holiest site in the world that this would start a holy war and so there are Muslims who are Israelis who want to demolish the Muslim Dome of the Rock to build a third Jewish temple on the site. And possession of the Ark would encourage extremists to wage war in order to achieve the same. Right. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant would be the most coveted item for such a temple. So we have Jewish extremists, angry Palestinians, and a third potentially explosive factor, the Ark of the Covenant find. So they're using archaeology as a weapon. Now, when, uh, when the uh, Ark of the Covenant was found, uh, Ron uh, spoke to the, uh, the technicians, and, and what happened was that um, the, the, the brown, the brown uh, uh, amount, the, the brown, what shall I say, the brown uh, substance. Res residue, yeah. Yeah, the brown residue. Uh, this was um, uh, found out to be blood. Now, um, when they were testing it, Ron was allowed in there, and uh, for three days it, the, the, the dried blood was rehydrated in a saline solution at body temperature. And then the tests were made, and it was found to be living blood. Now this is interesting. Uh, when they discovered this, they turned to Ron and they said, "Whose blood is this?" And Ron said, "Well, tell me, is it animal blood or human blood?" They said, "It's human blood." But they say it's different from human blood. Ron said, "What do you mean?" They said, "This is." blood that is different chromosomal count from normal blood and Ron said well what is it they and they said what hell's blood is this and Ron looked at them there were six men there in the laboratory he said this is the blood of Jesus Christ Yeshua your Messiah and immediately the men started tearing at their hair and screaming wow it almost it almost drove them insane. But they said, "How can this be? How can this be?" And they, and they were terrified. And Ron said, "Tell me what you found." Then they say, "This is the blood of somebody who had no human father." Huh. This is this is blood that is different. Now, if we don't know. Uh, blood actually uh, of the ordinary human person has uh, from the mother 23 chromosomes and from the father 23 chromosomes and uh, those 23 make a total of 46 chromosomes 
Now, one of these pairs is the gender determinant. For this pair, the mother always provides an X-shaped chromosome called, because of its shape, the, the, the X chromosome. And if the father provides an X, the child will contain chromosomes XX and will always be a female. Right. But if the father provides a Y shaped to some extent like the letter Y, the child will have a chromosome combination of XY and will be male. The mother provides the X, the father provides the, the Y. And the other 44 chromosomes, 22 pairs, are known as autosomes. Mm-hmm. Now, all eggs produced by the female will be identical and contain only X-shaped chromosomes. For her to produce a male offspring, there has to be an addition of a Y chromosome. Right. Now, in lab blood analysis from the art chamber, it was possible to find the chromosomal content of the blood. The blood was found to be human, but very peculiar. The blood had a total of only 24 chromosomes. And of these, 23 were derived from the mother. But only 24 chromosomes, not 46. Mm -hmm. And 23 were derived from the mother. Right. But the 23 chromosomes that should normally be provided by a man's father are not there. There was just one single Y chromosome which made him be a male. Wow. Now, no human blood like this had ever been known to exist, nowhere on the earth. Wow. Now, it's absolutely amazing. Now, this this whole thing, uh, I, I told this story when I was lecturing in Britain at Oxford University, and uh, at the end of the lecture, a gentleman came up to me and he introduced himself as Dr. Eugene Dunkley. Professor of Genetics at Oxford University. He said, I came to tell, to decide whether you were telling the truth when you spoke of the discovery of the Ark of the Covenant in this blood. How are you, what you have explained to me is convincing evidence that this is a genuine find. He said, Ron Wyatt could not have described that, neither could you. There was only one way it could be. It is truth. It would have to be that way if he was born of a virgin. Right. Wow. Well, the the, the uh, samples were taken to the United States. Uh, Ron's wife, Mary Nell herself, was able to take a small sample, rehydrate it over a three-day period, and view the red blood cells through the microscope. And that examination took place, I remember the date, October 11, 1996. Now, among a handful of witnesses to this living, moving blood, as seen through the microscope, are several people, and uh, it's pretty awesome. As a matter of fact, in 1995, Ron Wyatt invited my wife Josephine and I to privately examine the blood analysis certificate at his home in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, it's important to mention that because it demonstrates Ron's willingness to back up the truthfulness of his claim concerning the laboratory testing. Right. Now, another man, uh, Henry Groover, you may have heard of him. He's a man who has worked and ministered to the Lord in over 70 countries around the world. 
And I've spoken to him several times and, and he has written his testimony for me too. And he reports that around 1990 in Phoenix, Arizona, at the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship, Southwest Regional Convention, uh, Henry Groover says, I was at the table when Demos Shikarian, founder of the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship, you probably know that organization. Heard of it, yeah. Mm -hmm. You've heard of it, yeah. He, he assembled a special meeting with Ron Wyatt, and an attorney and a document specialist were present. The purpose of the meeting was to validate the certificates that Ron say, said he had received from the laboratories to prove the authenticity of the samples taken from his discoveries. Now, Ron came to the meeting and he had with him a blue three-ring binder containing these certificates in plastic document protectors. It included certificates from six laboratories, three in the USA, one in Jerusalem, one in Germany, and other certificates of his lab testing through the years. Now, one of the lab result certificates pertained to the chromosomes of the dried blood Ron discovered in the cave beneath the cross holes that had flowed down onto the Ark of the Covenant. When Ron opened his blue three-ring binder, the document specialist asked for permission to remove the certificates from their plastic folders. Reluctantly, Ron had granted permission to remove them from the document protectors as long as he didn't tamper with the documents or perform ink tests on the signatures. Mm -hmm. The document specialist then removed them from the plastic and looked at each certificate carefully. He had a very large, thick book with him that was 8 by 11 inches and about 6 inches thick. So it's 8 by 11 by 6. Mm -hmm. In it, he had brought with him the names and data for all the labs in the countries where Ron had lab tests done. He was able to look up each lab in his book as well as the record numbers. He had all the signatures in his book and compared them with the ones on the certificates from Ron. Mm -hmm. He was also able to validate the record numbers from each certificate. He looked at each signature with a magnifying glass like a jeweler does. When he finished examining each one carefully, he said this, I will verify the authenticity of these documents to the top court in the United States. Wow. And he was a registered document specialist in the USA at the time. Yeah. Demos Shakarian just smiled when he heard that. And then he named Ron. He says, I want you to be the keynote, speak keynote speaker at the upcoming meeting of the Full Gospel Business Men's Fellowship. Wow. So that's there amazing. we have that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, that's incredible. Didn't you say uh, in, in some of your work that, um, that there had been um, some kind of tunnel where the, they had uh, some – Angel, angelic encounters that happened, or uh, some men entered it oh, and yes. they were found dead. Or... Yes. Uh, Josephine and I, my wife and I, were in Jerusalem at the time. It, it was late in 1997. Mm -hmm. 
I think I think it was uh, no, somewhere between September and November 1997. And at that time, the Israeli government was worried that uh, the cave where the Ark of the Covenant is was underneath uh, the Arab portion of new of the New Jerusalem area of Jerusalem. Right. And they didn't want it to be in danger if if the Arabs got hold of it. So they dressed six men, six Israeli soldiers were dressed dressed up in Levitical priestal clothes as though they were priests. Mm -hmm. And they went into the tunnel. Uh, there's a tunnel that goes in from uh, Zedekiah's quarry, which is under the old city of Jerusalem. And then it goes, this is the, a new way to get into the cave with, without having to go through that two and a half years of digging that Ron did. Right. That part was sealed up, and now the new the new way to go in is through the tunnel that they've discovered, which goes right up from the old city to the cave and uh, is a, has, has a distance of 270 feet at about 20 feet below the street. So for 20 feet underground, there's a tunnel that goes for a, a length of 270 feet and ends in the cave where... Uh, the Ark of the Covenant and other items are still uh, domiciled. Oh, wow. So the Israeli authorities sent these six soldiers disguised as Levitical priests to go in that tunnel and bring the Ark out and then transport it to an underground place under the Jewish-controlled area of, old Jer of New Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Now, we were in Jerusalem at the time, and Ron was flying in from Nashville, Tennessee, to meet us, but he had to suddenly had to have an, an, an unexpected operation, just a small operation, and he couldn't get in straight away. And we could not wait. We had to go on because we had a plane fares booked and, and with certain dates to go to other parts of the Middle East that we were working in. So Ron told us he would report on his visit when he got back. So we left. And um, Ron, got, Ron flew in about a week later. And his normal practice was that he would offer help to the antiquities department with some of his equipment. And that gave them a, a, a reason to support him in some of his work when he needed help. Right. This time he went to the antiquities department and said, well, is there anything you, you want some help with while I'm here this time? And they said, well, Mr. White, we don't want your equipment this time, but yes, we can do with your help. Two weeks ago, we sent these six men into the tunnel to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant and relocate it in a safer place. Those two men never came out. They went in, but they haven't come out. Yeah. Would you please go in and see what you can find out for us? We don't want to go into the tunnel. They were very wise. Uh, so Ron went in. The distance was 270 feet. Ron got just 70 feet in. That's about 20 meters. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, right in front of him, lying on the ground in the tunnel, were these six men. On their backs, their eyes opened. Their right, every one of them, their right eye was crossed. 
every one of them, their left eye was crossed. So they had both eyes crossed, the six of them, and they were lying there looking up at the ceiling, but dead. Wow. I spoke to a doctor, medical doctor, and I said, what would that indicate? What would it indicate if a person had uh, both eyes crossed? One eye crossed would be a, a stroke. Two eyes crossed would be, he called it a bilateral stroke, a, a stroke on both sides of the body at the same time. Wow. So both, every one of those six men, when they got to the 70th foot of the tunnel, they all suffered the same bilateral stroke. They all struck dead. Oh, my goodness. Now, it's very interesting that Brian um, uh, went in. There they were. He came back to the entrance of the tunnel. He said, can you give me some body bags? So they went and got the body bags. Ron, Ron uh, rolled the, the, each man onto a body bag, and, and the people at the, outside the tunnel had a, a long rope, which they pulled They pulled them back out one by one. Right. And the Jerusalem Post, the newspaper, and other newspapers the next day reported that six Israeli soldiers had died trying to retrieve a, a priceless artifact. And that's huh. all they said. They, they said nothing more. Wow. So the ark still remains in that cave. Mm -hmm. My goodness. Now, it's, it's very interesting. You mentioned Angel. It's very interesting that um, Ron, on his last visit into that cave, he was in New Zealand here and he offered to take me if I would be a backup witness to some of the things that he had seen, but he couldn't reveal yet publicly, so that I could be a living eyewitness. And he said, when I go to Jerusalem next time, he said, all I'll do is I'll phone you. I'll say, I'm here, come. I won't even say where I am. You'll know what I mean. You'll come to Jerusalem. And we'll go in together. Mm-hmm. Well, Ron died before that happened. However, on his last visit in, Ron saw something different in the cave. All of the items that had been there before had been covered over with dry rotted animal skins. Now, that's the altar of, of, of showbread. Uh, sorry, the table of showbread, the, the seven branch lampstand and the uh, altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant had all been re had all been covered over with the dry rotted animal skins and stones. <coughs> and um, this time, everything was uncovered. Wow! Everything had been reassembled in, into the same relative relationship as it used to be in the tabernacle. Oh my goodness! And Ron then saw a, like a, a light moving, a rainbow, all the colors of the rainbow moving on the wall behind the Ark of the Covenant. And then suddenly, to his shock, he saw four young men in that cave. Four men in that cave, and yet no one else had been in there. Huh. What were they doing there? Who were they? Right. They were dressed like ordinary people in our modern-day clothing. And they said to Ron, come forward. Ron hesitated. He was very nervous. He right. said, come forward. And two of them 
got hold of the, uh, the the two cherubims, one each end of the of the of the ark, lifted it up, and with that was lifted the mercy seat, joined onto them as well. And then the other one, another one of them, spoke and says, "Ron White." So they knew his name; they knew him by name, yet he had never seen them before. Come forward, take out the tablets of stone, and put them on that ledge. Wow. Ron just stood there in shock. Mm-hmm. They said, come on, don't be afraid. Ron just went forward slowly. They said, put your hand down, pick up the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Ron put his hand down. He picked them up and just stood there in shock. They said, don't be afraid. Put them on that ledge, a stone ledge or part of the cave. Mm-hmm. After a bit of hesitation, Ron walked over to that ledge and he put them on there. The angel said to him, that will come out at a time when the world disregards God's law. A special time is coming. Wow. It will send shockwaves around the world that man's law, trying to abolish certain laws that God has made, will they'll see the evidence that God's law still exists. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't it? And I'll tell you something, I I never planned to write a book on the Ark of the Covenant. We we have a book on the Ark of the Covenant, which has had tremendous power. I can take no credit for it. That book should never have been written if I'd made the decision. Right. But the Lord started strongly impressing us until we got no peace, until we decided that, yes, we will will accept that, that, that job to do it. And we started writing it, but we didn't know what to put in it. Mm-hmm. And so we would pray. And for example, when when we were praying, my wife and I, uh, we each every chapter we prayed to the Lord. The, the Lord guided us in each, every chapter. And then one chapter came to Joseph of Arimathea, who gave the Lord his own new term. Right. And. He became a marked man because the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus' memory to be blotted out and for his body to be thrown onto a rubbish dump and burnt. Mm-hmm. But Joseph was a secret admirer of Jesus and he he believed in him. Right. And Joseph, who was a, a member of the Sanhedrin, the same ruling group that crucified Jesus, he did not agree with them on that. Mm-hmm. And he and Nicodemus, <clears throat> an, another... Sanhedrin member went and got permission to put the body of Jesus in his own new tomb. Mm-hmm. Now, I did not know anything about what happened to Joseph of Arimathea, but like I was guessing, he'd be a marked man. He'd he'd be he'd have the gunshot on him if he didn't watch out, right? Because he instead of letting Jesus be a a criminal. He gave him a martyr's very burial, which would be a great honor for him in a rich man's tomb. Right. So what happened next is amazing. I didn't know what we could write about him because I didn't have any information. Yet I knew it had to be given. Everybody would be asking, well, what happened to Joseph? Mm Mm-hmm. And so Josephine and I got down on our knees this particular morning and we prayed, Lord, 
if you want us to do, to, to do this chapter, would you please give us the information about Joseph of Arimathea? We lived about an hour from Adelaide, South Australia at that time. We went shopping that day. And while Josephine did the shopping, I went to the post office to see if there was any mail from overseas or local. Right. When I got to the post office, there was a parcel waiting for me. It was stamped from Great Britain. Mm -hmm. And when I opened it, it was from a man called Arthur Edel in England. Mm -hmm. He said, Jonathan, I don't know if this will interest you, but for the last 20 years, I have been researching from other documents from the ancient world about the subject of Joseph of Arimathea. <laughs> and you know what? He had posted that two years before we asked for it. I'm sorry, not two years, two weeks before we asked for it. And the very morning we got on our knees and asked for it, it arrived in the post office. That's amazing. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Jesus <laughs> says, before they call, I will answer. That's right. <laughs> uh, but I'm just getting up to the to another chapter. When, 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 when Ron told me about the six men, um, uh, no, about the four angels, about the four young men, he believed they were angels who were in that cave. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if, however, we could prove that. But it would be a skeptic who would say, "Well, there you are. You can't prove something like that. How do you know there were four angels?" Rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. So we thought it, it should go in the book. But does God want it to go in the book? So we got down on our knees and we prayed again. You know, half an hour after that prayer, a lady in Queensland, Australia, her name was Vader Cumuan. She phoned us and she said, Jonathan, my husband Daryl has just been reading an old book. And in this history book, it gives the story of the Jewish people and, and says that whenever the Ark of the Covenant was being transported, it was guarded by four angels. Oh, my goodness. Then do you know what? Half an hour after she rang, another man rang from a different part of Australia, and th these two people didn't know each other. She didn't know him. He didn't know her. He said, Jonathan, I've just been reading a book, an old history book about Jewish history. It's a different book from the one Vader talked about. He said, do you know the Ark of the Covenant was guarded by four angels? <laughs> At quite, both times, it was the only day that we ever got calls like that. I've never been taught. No one has ever rung me of all the thousands of phone calls I've had over the years. No one has ever rung to tell me that. But that morning, just after we prayed, two people rang. God That's answered amazing. the prayer. This was his work. It wasn't ours. I can take no credit for that book. Everything Amen. was supplied by God. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Wow, Jonathan, so you're totally blown I just want to close on the note of how wonderful God is. Oh, you're not kidding. You are not kidding. You, that that is so true. Uh, he answers us before we even know what we need. That that is so beautiful. Um, yes, he does. Oh man, Jonathan. Jonathan, would you, would you be open to coming on again and talking about other things too? 
Oh, yes, we can do that sometime, Sergeant. Okay, because I know that we talked about a pyramid one time and about a ley line that was in there and um, and about measurements and stuff like that, and I thought that was kind of fascinating, too. Um, I think that was us that we talked about that. Um, I'm not sure, but uh, the King's Chamber and things like that. But um, it's it's uh, the the hour is getting kind of late, and um, I'm sure that uh, Jim and uh, Eric are getting ready to turn into pumpkins. That's that's a uh, term we use. <laughs> yep. Yeah, sure. But, but uh, well, okay, it's been a pleasure pleasure being with you, fellas. Oh, same here, Jonathan. It's always a blessing to have you on. And uh, why don't you uh, give everybody your web address uh, and how they can contact you and everything. And uh, they know that your book is Dead Men's Secrets, but you have other books that they can find on your website, I'm sure. Yes. Actually, what I'd, what I'd like to, to give is um, uh, a, a website, a, a web page address to everybody now. If you've got a pen, just write it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I'm giving away all my, all my e-books, every single one. I, I'm, no, I'm no longer charging because the time is short now and the, the difficult times financially for many people. I don't want anyone to miss out. Awesome. www.beforeus.com. That's B for Belgium, E-F-O-R-E-U-S, Before Us. Dot com mm-hmm. forward slash shop cart s h o p for peter c a r t one word shop cart one okay. word okay shop cart underscore you know like a like a, a dash underneath the, the letters right. joining them together underscore ebooks e b for belgium o o k S ebooks dot H T M for mother L H T M L. Okay, great. Go to that page and the books are all yours and share them with as many as you wish. Oh my goodness, Jonathan. What a blessing. What a blessing. Thanks. Yeah. We will put them on our websites and stuff and and Okay, um, you can put that link on your website if you don't mind. You can put the books up if you want to. Okay, that sounds wonderful. I'd love to do that. Oh, that'd be awesome. Jonathan, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for taking all your – I know your time is precious, and I thank you for taking that time to come on and for enlightening us. And you've given us a lot of brain and heart food that we have to digest now. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I'll be in touch with you again, and maybe we can can come on some more and uh, because – uh, you know, you've just touched the uh, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, on different things. And um, there are a lot of more amazing facts and stuff that uh, I know people would want to hear. Reading a book's fine, but people would want to hear it from the author himself, you know. So um, yeah. if, if you so agree, then we'll do that. And, uh, and I'll send you an email. Maybe we can make arrangements of when you'll be you'll be available and stuff like that If if you want to. It's up to you. But uh, thank you again so much for being on, Jonathan. I, what a blessing. And uh, yeah, Thank you, Jonathan. My, my, my pleasure, gentlemen. And it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a joy and pleasure to be with you today and to share these things and, and give God the credit because it wouldn't oh, yes. be possible without him. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> if, 
It's a blessing you're out there. What a what a gift to the church. Yes. Yes, God has given us a wonderful gift in you. Amen. So good to have you back, man. I'm glad you survived all the pandemic and all the other weirdness going on. Yes, well, so long as so long as we have work to do, he'll care for us. That's Amen. right. That's right. Okay, folks, I'm going to end the show up. So uh, God bless everybody. Thank you for listening in. And uh, yeah. uh, good night, y'all. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. See you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.